from the newsroom of The Washington Post. Hi, Kevin. This is Gabrielle Kelly at The Washington Post. How are you? Hey there. It's Simon from The Post. Uh, hey, it's Dave Farron from Post. Have you got a second talk? This is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Friday, April 5th. Today, a leading civil rights group ousts its founder over accusations of misconduct, the future of Fox News, and a new Bible for the Instagram generation. Last month, the Southern Poverty Law Center made headlines when it abruptly fired its co-founder, Morris Dees. The Southern Poverty Law Center is a nonprofit that's based in Montgomery, Alabama. It has offices all over the country now. And it does a variety of things. It's best known for labeling hate groups. They're often quoted by law enforcement and the media as an authority on identifying and exposing hate groups. But it also does a lot of other things. It's got a voting rights project. It has an immigrant rights project. It files a lot of lawsuits on behalf of people who are disenfranchised and vulnerable. My name is Nina Satija, and I'm an investigative reporter for The Post. The Southern Poverty Law Center got its start in 1971 as a pretty small civil rights firm. But since its founding, the SPLC transformed into somewhat of a moral authority on matters relating to civil rights and public interest law. The SPLC filed lawsuits against the Ku Klux Klan, fought segregation and gender inequality, and sought to abolish the death penalty. You know, it's certainly been seen as one of the most important groups fighting racial discrimination, extremism, hate groups. So when its co-founder was fired, there were a lot of questions. I think we were hoping to answer the question of why was Morris Dees fired. And we also wanted to get a better picture of this man who, in many circles, seen as a civil rights hero, but seems to be clouded by these questions of making racially insensitive remarks or treating women inappropriately. Morris Dees is an 82-year-old white civil rights lawyer from Alabama. For decades, he has cultivated this reputation as a civil rights leader and a civil rights legend, fighting racial discrimination, helping lift people up who are disenfranchised and vulnerable. But our reporting also shows another side to him. Morris Dees was fired on March 13th. The announcement went out on the following day. And since then... You know, the nonprofit has been really tight-lipped about what happened. The president, Richard Cohen, told us of an investigation into alleged workplace misconduct that happened earlier in March, as well as a previous investigation of workplace misconduct where Morris had been disciplined. And what do we know about the specific circumstances that led to his firing? We don't know very much. The SPLC has just told us that he was once disciplined for workplace misconduct. But what we've learned is that Maureen Costello, a director at the SPLC, has been arguing that Morris Dees should go for quite some time. Maureen Costello actually told us that back in July of 2018, she spoke about this to the organization's president, Richard Cohen. She said something to the effect of Morris is a racist and a sexist and he needs to go. And according to Costello, Richard Cohen replied that Morris Dees is more of a, quote, anachronism. Morris Dees said his firing has nothing to do with misconduct. He showed us documents that indicate leaders at the organization have been pressuring him to retire and they want him out. 
They say, according to these, that he's been meddling too much in the organization's affairs. They even worried that he might have led a senior executive to resign by interfering too much in that person's job. And he's saying they simply wanted him to retire. He refused to do so. And so they fired him. Hey, how you doing? I wasn't sure which direction I was headed in. Well, that's <laughs> Wesley, nice hey, to meet Wesley, you. Nice how to you doing? Thanks for having me. My colleague, Wes Lowry, spent almost three hours with Morris and his wife in Montgomery, Alabama last week at a building that he had purchased in 2008 in Montgomery that he calls the Cloverdale Playhouse. I love theater, so I've always been worked in for years. I'm not an actor, I just... And Morris basically said this had nothing to do with misconduct. My reputation, uh, I mean, I've done cases all over the country, every kind of case you can imagine. For anybody to say I'm a racist is... is, uh, it's almost a joking matter. I was not aware of any kind of investigation into my conduct that was a recent investigation. And all of this happened because the board and Richard Cohen have been pressuring me to retire, and I refused to do that. And they got sick of me, and they fired me. We've gotten calls. I'll bet you I've gotten 100 calls. Federal judges who love me, know me, and, and, and big and state U.S. senators and individuals all over calling me from everywhere saying, what is this crap? We don't believe this crap. But you've been hearing another version from other people. We've spoken to a lot of former employees who have seen Morris Dees act in ways that they felt were not in keeping with the SPLC's values. And Richard Cohen has also disputed that account. Richard Cohen has told us that Morris was well aware that his conduct was under investigation and that he had been disciplined in the past for workplace misconduct. Richard Cohen told us, quote, I fired Morris for the good of the center because of his misconduct. I should note that a lot of people were very afraid to talk to us. They were afraid of retaliation, whether it was by Morris Dees or by the Southern Poverty Law Center. All right. And so it looks like one of my colleagues has talked to two people on the record. One former employee who worked at the center in the 1980s, Deb Ellis, told me that Morris had once left a Victoria's Secret catalog on her desk with a note on top of it that said, maybe your boyfriend would like to buy some of the stuff in this catalog for you. Morris denies that this ever happened. But Deb Ellis tells us that she warned other women in the office at the time that Morris might approach them. And that's also what we've heard from more recent female employees, that they exchanged warnings about how Morris might treat them in the office or in events outside of the office. I did want to talk a little bit about the Atlanta incident, if only because... The Atlanta uh, About what, whatever had happened in Atlanta at the end of 2017. Oh. Um, the Southern Poverty Law Center has not given us any detail on the misconduct that they say led to Morris D's firing. But Morris has a couple of thoughts on this, both of which seem to relate to potential allegations of sexual misconduct, or at least acting inappropriately with women. Morris told us that after an event in November of 2017 in the organization's Atlanta office, a woman there reported that he had made her feel uncomfortable. We tried to reach out to other people who may have been there, and we were not successful. But Morris says... Yeah, I think it all arose in my commenting about her tattoos on her arm, which... That he touched the woman's shoulder, asked her about a tattoo she had, and that when she asked him if he had a tattoo, he pointed to his right thigh and said, I can't show you the tattoo, but I do have a tattoo. And that whole thing took less than a minute. Just a minute. It wasn't like in a private room or made no sexual comments or any endos or suggested anything, nothing. He was investigated as a result of that incident. He claims he wasn't disciplined for it, but that he did agree to a request to stay out of the Atlanta office for six months. 
The SPLC has also told us that there's a second investigation launched earlier last month. Morristee's told us he has no idea what that investigation is, but he remembers getting a phone call from the SPLC's in-house counsel. And as Dees tells us, the lawyer asked him if he had hugged a woman during an SPLC legal retreat in August of 2017. And that's about it. And Dees says he doesn't remember if he did or he didn't, and that's what he told the lawyer, and that he's never heard anything about those questions since. But then there are also incidents about ways that he talks about race. I integrated the state troopers, and I was the first African-American trooper. I got them hired. Uh, did all the redistricting for the Alabama legislature. I just owned and owned and owned. I mean, you know, I was born in 1936, and everybody believed in segregation if you grew up, grew up on a farm like I did. But I changed quickly when I got to college. I changed it like that, you know. And so <clears throat> that's just that's just a, a, a red herring for somebody to say that I'm a racist. Morris Dees told us that in May of 2018, three board members came to his home with a number of different complaints. Dees told us that during this meeting, the board members pressured him to resign and he refused. So instead, he agreed to a $100,000 pay cut, a pretty significant pay cut, and to be put on emeritus status. I feel like hearing this sounds kind of bizarre just because this is the person who founded a civil rights organization. And the idea that that person would also make comments or make jokes that advance a racist attitude, I think would surprise a lot of people. That's absolutely right. And the former employees that we spoke with really felt this tension. They were shocked. We also interviewed some friends of Morris who stridently defended him and said they can't imagine him ever making comments like that either. And what was he saying about how he felt in that situation? Was he angry or defensive or, or just sad or? I think Dees is definitely frustrated with how he feels he's been portrayed. Dees actually claims that he is a scapegoat for other problems at the Southern Poverty Law Center that have nothing to do with him. Now, Dees says that, you know, staff discontent is at an all-time high that Richard Cohen and the board needed somebody to blame and that they decided that Dees would be their scapegoat. That's Morris Dees' version of events. Richard Cohen says, absolutely untrue. It strikes me that an organization like the SPLC, basically one of its big jobs is to serve as a moral authority, right? To point out wrongdoing in other places right. by other organizations. Is there a concern that these allegations could compromise that moral authority? I think that's certainly a concern of outside observers, and it's also a concern of people who work there. Based on current employees we've interviewed and internal emails that we've seen that come from staff, there's definitely a concern that the way the organization is operating internally is not reflecting the moral high ground it's trying to occupy externally. And that will undermine the public work that the Southern Poverty Law Center is doing. Do you think that that reflects something that's going on in a lot of different places? Like that people are in a moment where they are ready to look past just the reputation of an organization or the reputation of a company and say, even if this is a company that does good, there can still be people who are doing bad things within there. Absolutely. I think that there's a sense that for a long time it was run by a now 82-year-old white man from Alabama, that it's had almost all white leadership for its entire existence. 
and that now you have a lot of new, younger, more diverse staff coming in who want to make changes within the organization. And so I definitely think that this new generation of people who are working at the Southern Poverty Law Center and who are maybe even observing the Southern Poverty Law Center from the outside want it to be held to a higher level of scrutiny than perhaps in the past. So what does the SPLC say about all of this? They don't say very much. Other than Richard Cohen telling us that he fired Morris Dees because of workplace misconduct, he would not engage with us further on whether Maureen Costello tried to bring concerns about Morris Dees to him. The SPLC would not comment on any of the other things Morris Dees told us about his pay cut, about his emeritus status, about the Atlanta investigation. They simply told us that many of the assertions that Dees has given us are false, but they would not elaborate. Just days after firing Morris Dees, Richard Cohen announced that he would step down as president of the SPLC. Nina Satija is an investigative reporter for The Post. Wesley Lowry is a national correspondent. Rupert Murdoch's life has been defined by his business. And his family. Sarah Ellison covers media for The Post, and she's been reporting on a change in the leadership of Fox Corporation. It's a company that's been defined by the mogul Rupert Murdoch. He's an Australian media mogul who started his um, media empire based on two small papers that he inherited from his father in 1952 in Adelaide, Australia. And he proceeded to build that um, company both in the UK and then in the United States, into a real powerhouse that controlled 20th Century Fox movie studios, Fox television, Fox news, a a huge number of newspapers. It was one of the most global and powerful media companies on the planet. And when you speak to his children, they tell stories about being around the breakfast table and only talking about the media business. Um, And that was the way to be interesting to their father. Now, Murdoch has sold most of Fox to Disney, and that leaves just a fragment of the organization for his son, Lachlan Murdoch. Lachlan Murdoch is his oldest son and was raised for a long time to believe that he was going to inherit the company and succeed his father um, at one point. The interesting thing about Rupert Murdoch is that it was always very important to him that one of his children eventually succeed him. What's left of Fox is Fox Sports, the Fox TV network, Fox broadcast stations, and welcome to Fox News Channel. Arguably the most famous asset, Fox News. If you're Lachlan, you think, I was raised my whole life to succeed my father, but now he's giving me, you know, essentially a much, much smaller piece of the puzzle. And a lot of people that I've talked to in my reporting have said this is a sort of sign of a lack of faith that Rupert Murdoch had in his children's ability to run the company without him. Many of Murdoch's children have run parts of the company over the years. They've all had their turn in the barrel inside the family business where they have been given jobs at a very young age by their father. And then they run up against 
very well-established and experienced executives inside their father's business who know better or think they think they know better than these kids who are coming up. And one of the things that Rupert Murdoch almost always did was at some point take the side of his more experienced executive over the opinion of whatever child happened to be disagreeing with that executive. Rupert Murdoch, in theory, wanted his children to succeed him. But mostly, it seems, he wanted his company to succeed. And he cared about that more than supporting his kids or making his kids feel like they were doing a good job. I mean, it seems like the record would indicate, yes, that when push came to shove, he chose the business over his children. Now, it's up to Lachlan Murdoch to redefine himself outside of the shadow of his legendary father. He sort of has a very strong view that you can't forget the past of the company. You have to build on the shoulders of the people who've come before you. So he really feels very respectful of that history. But he is trying to build it back up again. So he wants to create his own, he wants to put his own imprint on this. But it's very much, his father is still in the background So one of the things that Lachlan Murdoch will now be in charge of is Fox News. Do you expect that his vision for Fox News will be different from his father's vision? So it's important to remember that Fox News has gone through major changes of its own even before Lachlan Murdoch came on the scene. In the summer of 2016, a former Fox host, Gretchen Carlson, sued Fox News and Roger Ailes, then the CEO, of the network for sexual harassment and retaliation. And key in that story is the involvement of Lachlan and his younger brother, James Murdoch, who helped push out Roger Ailes. Rupert Murdoch had been a longtime Ailes ally and protector. And one of the key things that Rupert Murdoch did with his top executives was to leave them alone as long as they were bringing in money and business. Um, And that was his approach to Roger Ailes. and, And Rupert Murdoch would always say, leave him alone. He knows what he's doing. And so I think that's the Fox News that people are used to. Um, Roger Ailes left the network in the summer of 2016. Donald Trump was elected in the fall of 2016. And Donald Trump's election really changed a lot about the way Fox News operates. These were two sort of seismic events, the departure of the founding kind of CEO of Fox News and the election of Donald Trump, and it put them on a different course. So... Lachlan is sort of inheriting a different Fox News than than what had existed before, but he comes at it with a somewhat different approach than what his father brought to the network. And there's a lot of fear inside of Fox that Lachlan is less loyal to the network than his father was. Um, There are rumors that circulate inside that newsroom that he might sell it. Um, He denies those. He says he's very committed to to Fox News, but there's this sense that he might not be as invested in the place as Rupert Murdoch was, even though Lachlan Murdoch has conservative politics. He is not as political an animal as his father was. Interesting, because his father has really wielded a lot of power because of Fox News, because of the way that Fox News speaks to the president, and because of the way that Rupert Murdoch has crafted a real relationship with the president. Why is that not something that Lachlan is going to lean into? I'm not really sure why he's not leaning into it or why he's not hasn't yet leaned into it. But 
he has been explicit that he is not, you know, he, he has never spoken to Donald Trump. I mean, that was something that came up in our reporting that was really interesting, which was that while Rupert Murdoch is on the phone quite frequently and, and quite regularly with Donald Trump, that's not something that Lachlan does. So it's a very different approach to the overall business because Rupert Murdoch throughout his career really made a habit of ingratiating himself and having a relationship with politicians who were running the various countries that he wanted to operate in. Every year, he'd send me this letter, could you please give money? I say, what do I have to do with that, Rupert? And I just keep sending him money, money, and now I realize that was money well spent. That's great. <laughs> right, Rupert? Sometimes he was an antagonist, sometimes he was not at all an antagonist. But this relationship that he had with Donald Trump and still has with Donald Trump, I mean, it's important to remember that Rupert Murdoch is still looking over the shoulder of his son and is involved in ways that we don't necessarily see on a day-to-day -day basis. Lachlan tells people that he thinks that politicians are something of a distraction to the job that he has to do, which is basically run a company. And so he isn't engaged in the exact kind of communication that his father was with elected leaders and with politicians. And so that's just a completely different approach to running a major media company, particularly one that is as in touch with the president as certain personalities are within Fox News. And it sets up a strange power dynamic inside of that company where, in some ways, someone like Sean Hannity, who is on the phone with the president almost more than anyone else in the president's circle. Uh, Sean Hannity has been a terrific, terrific uh, supporter of what I do, not of me. He wields a tremendous amount of power. He has defined Fox News, that relationship with the president. If Lachlan Murdoch doesn't have that, and he doesn't have that, then where does the real power lie in that network? And that's a question that people inside Fox are asking. I mean, clearly Lachlan runs the company, he's the CEO, he's in control, but you have this other power center that is incredibly strong and it sets up a kind of dichotomy that really didn't exist as much before. And it's also the seed of the kind of distrust that some people inside of the Fox newsroom, particularly the more outspoken bellicose, like opinion hosts, it, the distrust that they have for a new Lachlan Murdoch era of Fox News. So if Lachlan Murdoch is planning to veer away from that kind of hyperpartisan, bellicose, opinion-dominated sense of Fox News, what does he envision for the network and, and what does he envision for the company under his tenure? I'm not sure that he plans to veer away from those hosts. I mean, he has said publicly that he doesn't want to change the market position of Fox News. And so by definition, the market position is really um, the highest rated shows. And the highest rated shows have always been the opinion shows. And he doesn't want to turn away from that. I mean, remember, he also is inheriting his father's company and he doesn't want to screw it up. So he's sort of facing two different, what he might want to do and what he might agree with. He also has to deal with the realities of running a business. He has said publicly that he is proud of Fox News, and he thinks that it's incredibly important that there is a, a mainstream conservative outlet in this country. What puts him at odds with 
the Trump White House and the Trump era of politics is that he talks about having conservative principles that would define Fox News, not about principles that would be loyal to a single politician. And so in that way, what's going on inside Fox News and what's so interesting about the place is that it's, it mirrors almost exactly what's going on inside the Republican Party, where people who feel inside that party that Donald Trump has taken, taken the party away from the traditional conservative principles that it has held for decades um, feel some, somewhat adrift. And I think that what Lachlan has talked to people about wanting to do is bring Fox News in line with the conservative principles that it stands for, as opposed to being completely loyal to a single politician. Sarah Ellison is a media reporter for The Post. And now, one more thing. Where Instagram meets the Bible. So I'm picking up the Book of Romans. It looks like something I might find in an artist studio. It's got a, a blank white cover, but a really bold image. The photos look like a beautiful Instagram account. You know, Instagram is designed to make you scroll. And I think in some ways this is designed to make you keep turning the page. Peter Hawley has been following this new millennial-friendly Bible trend. I'm a reporter covering technology for The Washington Post. The company that founded these particular Bibles is called Alabaster. It's run by two fairly young guys in their 20s. Hi. Who think it's working? Met at University of Southern California. My name is Brian Chung. And my name is Brian Yi Chung. They're both Christian, and they decided they wanted to create a Bible that reflected their design aesthetic. The making of Alabaster was sort of a personal project for me. Like, it's it's something that I would use. So Brian Chung first experienced the Bible as somebody who grew up Buddhist. And the first time he attempted to read the Bible... It was very intimidating. <laughs> I didn't know where to begin. He got a few pages in and totally gave up. And the reason was because... He felt like the text was really small. Pages were really, really thin. Columns with really densely packed text and numbers. And it was not only confusing, but it was just boring. I remember like someone was like, hey, you should read four chapters a day. And I'm like, oh, that's a lot. <laughs> like He'd been hearing all these really wonderful, glorious things about religion and about Christianity in particular. And he opened the Bible and it was this massive letdown. <laughs> um, I had to force myself to read it. <laughs> The way that Alabaster thinks about the Bible is that it's not just a holy book, but it's also a lifestyle brand, one that's full of content. And they draw from brands like Shinola, Orby Parker, Harry's, and the Swedish watchmaker Daniel Wellington. These are brands that kind of appeal to the millennial aesthetic. They look very clean, urbane, and hip. I don't think this is an entirely new phenomenon. I think in some ways it's an old phenomenon represented in a new fashion. In the Middle Ages, most people couldn't read. And so the churches packaged their message with massive cathedrals and incredible frescoes. And there was a whole lot of emphasis put on beauty. And it's only the last few hundred years where we associate Christianity with the King James Version of the Bible, which is, I guess, 16th century English language and packaged in a way that is somewhat foreboding looking. The Christian church is bleeding young people. It's not just this company, but it's other companies that realize that millennials are increasingly disinterested in religion, and they realize that they have to find new ways to package this message. Peter Hawley reports on technology for The Post.
And that's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. You can learn more about the stories in today's show at postreports.com. Follow me on Twitter at Martine Powers or share your thoughts on this episode with the hashtag PostReports. Our executive producer is Madalika Stika. Our senior producer is Matt Collette. Our producers are Alexis Diao, Rena Flores, Lena Mohammed, Maggie Penman, Jordan Marie Smith, and Ted Muldoon, who composes original music and does sound design for the show. The post-director of audio is Jess Stahl. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back on Monday with more stories from The Washington Post.